you know, beauty isn't a facade, it's a foundation. Mm-hmm. And that's the most present in the home. Right? If we create homes that are beautiful, uh, beautiful from the very beginning, the very inception, that's going to set people up with a foundation to succeed. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. This episode is the first installment of the Halal Housing Lab series, where we'll explore the various challenges and barriers that impact housing affordability for newcomer and Muslim families in Edmonton, Alberta. Over the next number of months, our team will be exploring the following challenge question. How do we leverage civil society to design, build, and sustain appropriate affordable housing for racialized and multi-barriered communities? This is the question that's guiding the Halal Housing Lab, a solutions lab that's funded by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, or CMHC. The CMHC Solutions Lab program offers organizations with funding and expertise to help them solve complex housing problems and explore new ways of making progress on a housing challenge. These labs fuel bottom-up collaborative innovation by bringing together diverse groups of folks to solve complex housing problems and to help inform decision-making at all levels. This lab was initiated by the Islamic Family Social Services Association, or IFSA, in partnership with Another Way, SAS Architecture, Ask for a Better World, and our team here at Intelligent Futures. We're a CMHC-qualified innovation consultant leading the Solutions Lab process in design and delivery. With the goal to explore new ways of planning, designing, and financing affordable housing for families that don't fit within traditional models. More information about the CMHC Solutions Labs can be found in the show notes of this episode. So today we're going to begin to explore the complexity of the challenge at hand with various lab partners. So with that, let's dive in. My name is Amir Koub. I get to serve the team at Islamic Family. Uh, Islamic Family is a social change agency based in Edmonton that supports people going through crisis, you know, supports the, uh, the mother who is fleeing violence who wants her identity uh, to be respected, uh, supports the, the man looking for counseling who, um, who isn't supported elsewhere and supports youth who really want to grow and flourish. Maybe you could share a story uh, about some of the circumstances and the challenges that people you're serving are facing, um, you know, that that's really a confluence of, of challenges that people might not understand <clears throat> when we think about um, some of the challenges that folks may face in, in getting housed properly for, for multi-generational families, as an example. Yeah, one of the, the hardest stories I've had to deal with in my work uh, was actually a person who I know through community who, um, you know, was from Toronto, um, got married, moved to Edmonton, uh, had kids here, but was actually in a, in a situation where there, there was domestic violence in the home. And she was also taking care of her parents, which is not an uncommon circumstance by any means, right? The mm-hmm. idea of taking care of her parents, taking care of kids, um, it's fairly normal, uh, especially in in communities with rich tradition, rich culture, extended family structures. Um, you know, when the domestic violence came to this crescendo uh, where she couldn't deal with it, the predicament she was left in was, with all the shelters in the city, was we can't take care of your parents. You can't bring them with you. Um, 
And so she was in this predicament, which is leave your kids or leave your parents or stay in abuse, which is not a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that to me speaks to the need for us to think about how do we think about housing differently? How do we think about shelters differently? How do we think about supportive housing in ways that actually um, help what isn't an isolated incident? Um, you know, these are these are scenarios that we can no longer ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <clears throat> one of the things that that I'm excited about with with the lab that we're collaborating on is is to look at converging challenges that folks are experiencing. And, you know, the, the story you just shared is, is a great example of that, that you may be able to identify a housing challenge in isolation. So I have to find a housing situation that requires me to have supports. If I'm leaving domestic violence, a separate view, maybe I have to house intergenerational families and, and, there, you know, another housing approach maybe um, for newcomers to Canada, but those things don't happen in isolation for the lived experience of a lot of folks. We're all intersectional, you know, going back to that mother, right? Uh, one of her kids was special needs, right? And so that just compounded the impact, right? Uh, taking care of elderly parents who don't, uh, who aren't fluent in English, taking care of kids who have high needs and being in a domestic abuse situation. Right. Um, it shouldn't be that you have to abandon your parents or abandon your kids to leave abuse. Mm-hmm. And when we, you know, the, the lab, uh, as, as we're exploring through this, we're trying to understand, um, you know, the, the realities of, of newcomers to Canada. Um, and maybe you could share with the listeners some of the main barriers that newcomer Muslim families face in their search to acquire affordable housing that, that to meet their needs that, that folks might not fully understand or think about. Yeah. They're often very complex. You know, they're, they're coming with larger family sizes. Um, Typical family size is seven, you know, five kids. Some of those kids may be part of the family or they might be part of an extended family unit. And that's because of war, dislocation, all those other things. You know, a sibling is taking care of another um, sibling's um, kids because they're orphaned or other circumstances. So that alone is a hugely complicating factor because Mm -hmm. the majority of housing units we build tend to be two-bedroom, one-bath units that are very economical. When we talk about building, we're often talking in very narrow terms like unit counts. And so we tend to build housing that's not in sync with the needs of larger and extended families. Furthermore, you know, the, the ways that we finance those or the ways that people can graduate out of those doesn't always align with their values. When we think about larger and extended families, it's also important to note that this is the group with the, that's spending the, the most amount of time on the affordable housing wait list. These families are often spending three or four years waiting for affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we think about that pressure, especially as you're raising a young family, it creates a lot of stress and um, leads to a lot of negative consequences, right? We we can't have a large family waiting four years to find adequate housing. Mm -hmm. And and when we think about um, some of the opportunities that, that, 
um, we've observed in the lab that you've observed in your in your work at IFSA. Um, where do you see some of the biggest opportunities for change when we when we think about some of these housing solutions? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we have to conceive of housing differently. Um, you know, Chuck D says, "Why do we think them have nots be robots?" I think that's a a really important line for us to reflect on, right? Because oftentimes when we're designing housing, we're designing for robots. We're like, oh, we put a shelter, we put a room in there, and people should like it. We're, you know, and sometimes when we ask people about what their housing is, they're so preconditioned to the answers or the situations they're using, they're they're used to or so deplorable that oftentimes they just respond with, I just want something that's safe and secure, which is, I think just a given, right? Like, of course, I mm-hmm. should be safe, right? That shouldn't be how we uh, how we set our milestone. Yeah, I think what we really, really need to do is to think about housing first and foremost from a values perspective. And so, when we talk uh, to newcomers or Indigenous people, when we talk about what housing really means to them, oftentimes, you know, when you get to the stories, they're talking about hospitality. Yeah, And if we think about housing and hospitality, we actually design differently. You know, we don't design for individualized um, units or for very large bedrooms and small living areas. We reverse that. Uh, we might think about a gendered dimension to the home, right? So that people can socialize in ways that they're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, we might think about shared amenities very, very differently. And I think those are some huge opportunities. Mm-hmm, for sure. And one of the things that we've talked about in our conversations through the lab with our colleagues is is the idea not only of hospitality, uh, but beauty. Uh, wondering if you could maybe um, share your thoughts on that, because we've we've it, it's been an interesting exploration of, uh, you know, when you when you think about uh, the Chuck D uh, reference, robots don't care about beauty. Human beings do. And how we rethink, reconce- reconceptualize uh, housing and, and the idea of beauty as well as hospitality. Yeah, even I would I would take it one step further and think when we were thinking about social service or social change, or um, you know serving people who may have need. Oftentimes we're only concerned about the the functional need that's presenting itself, and that's a very superficial way of addressing the problem, right? Um, you know, we might call someone into um, a cramped waiting room and tell them to wait. And then when they actually see a social worker, um, you know, it's in an inhospitable room. Uh, maybe they're hearing someone crying in the room over because we've only prioritized the the base need, right? When we start to think about, oh, what would actually help this person feel comfortable, relaxed, and think about their situation differently? Well, then, then we actually have to think about beauty. We have to think about all of those other elements. Um, you know, beauty isn't a facade, it's a foundation. Mm-hmm. And that's the most present in the home. Right? If we create homes that are beautiful, uh, beautiful from the very beginning, the very inception, that's going to set people up with a foundation to succeed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderfully put, Omar. 
that idea of setting folks up for success is such a foundational component to the success of this lab, where we're prioritizing the needs of newcomer Muslim families, trying to take a human-centered design approach. Uh, so next, we're going to speak with our lab's expert of lived experience, uh, Lena Awad, to understand the holistic approach to community well-being required in affordable housing that's both culturally and spiritually sensitive. My name is Lena. I work with the Islamic Family as a Research and Programs Director. Um, my journey with Islamic Family started many years ago at this point. Um, I've been working with the organization in multiple different capacities. Um, right now, I am... Um, I basically built the, org- built the organization's refugee sponsorship program from the ground up, um, helping develop some digital tools to help us scale and uh, enhance the process uh, that we work on. Um, I'm also working uh, with a few different programs within the organization. One of them is, is the uh, housing program. Um, I also helped develop the Roots on Six uh, platform, which is a digital storytelling platform um, that allows us to bring together multi-generational newcomers and Indigenous people in our community and to explore um, their identities on Treaty 6. So um, you you ran through a pretty extensive list of, of uh, services and programs that uh, Islamic Family uh, provides. Um, maybe when we think about people's housing journey, um, what are the programs uh, that, that you deliver that are most integrated and most impactful in terms of helping newcomer Muslim families find uh, appropriate housing? Um, the majority of the clients that we serve are newcomers. Um, and people come to us with various needs. So we are, we're serving people who are looking for safety, for security, and for growth. Um, what that translates to on the ground in, in terms of housing and in general, uh, we have people coming to us like a mother who's fleeing domestic abuse um, and wanting not to compromise her identity, but still seek safety um, and housing. Uh, we support men who are seeking counseling, but don't want to compromise their values. Um, and we're able to respect them in that process. We support youth who are looking for um, opportunities for, to have a creative platform to connect with the broader community. We support refugee families who are starting new beginnings in a new world uh, amidst a lot of hardship. Amongst other things, they're also looking for housing, looking for a new space to make their home. And we believe before anything that we're created to serve within our community and, and more broadly, um, the Islamic family has been working in the community for over 30 years. Um, so we support people with a lot of different things. Um, mm. our, the breadth of our reach has really expanded uh, in recent years specifically. Um, and a lot of that has to do with community demand um, and the typographic of the community that we we're serving and how much it, it has changed in, in recent years. Um, right now, shockingly, we serve about 5,000 clients every month. Um wow. And that's in various capacities. So we're, we're serving victims of domestic and gender-based violence. Uh, we're supporting folks through our food bank, which is the second largest in Edmonton. Uh, we're helping resettled refugees in Canada. Um, and we deliver a huge range of preventative programming. Um, I mentioned the youth programming that we work on. Um, but we're, we're doing a lot of preventative programming to connect folks in our community to resources, to individuals, to livelihood, um, to help them sustain their lives in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And when when you're working with newcomer Muslim families and they're trying to find housing, can you maybe describe some of those barriers that they're experiencing, perhaps big and small, to help listeners understand the, the variety of challenges that, that folks may be facing? Yeah, um, I feel like affordable housing is an, is an oxymoron these days. Uh, the trend I'm noticing is a lot of newcomers are spending more than half their the the funding that they're getting, um, the monthly funding that they're receiving, more than half of it is going towards housing. 
What's even more concerning is when they're sitting with their service providers um, to discuss their healthcare, to discuss their resettlement, to talk about language progress. Um, what they're bringing up more often than those things is their housing needs. Mm-hmm. That's, that's trumping even their basic physical needs. Um, and that's a concerning trend. Many Muslim families that we're working with, um, they're looking for affordable housing. They're looking for housing unit that can also house um, a larger extended family um, and often multiple generations of the same family within the same space. And the affordable housing units that are available on the market don't cater to that demographic. Um, most of those units are one to two uh, bedrooms. Um, anything that's three plus bedrooms is taking more than four years uh, for people to be able to access it. And the clients, the client base that we have um, is very much overrepresented um, mm. in this affordable housing space. About 10%, I believe, of Zivida's uh, uh, residents um, our, speak the languages that our clients do, so Somali, Arabic, Urdu. And I think a more recent statistic that we saw was that Arabs are the poorest visible minority community uh, in Edmonton, and that was from Stats Canada 2016, I believe. Mm. Mm. So those are families that are really, really struggling to find space for affordable housing, to, to be able to make it in that space. Um, and they're overrepresented in the affordable housing market. And that's a trend that we, that I think, extends across Canada, so beyond the Edmonton community. What they're struggling with in that space is, I think, two main things. One is a lack of, afford- of appropriate financing. Um, so for most Muslim mm-hmm. families, um, they're looking for opportunities to, to find housing that does not in- include interest. The other big thing that they face is th- there's a huge lack of affordable housing units that would cater to the family sizes that we work with. Um, you know, those are larger extended families. I'll share one of the stories that I've seen with, with community members that we have. Um, we had a family that was over 12 members within the same household and different generations. Uh, when they were trying to house them in a unit, they couldn't find anything that would accommodate them. Uh, they ended up in two separate apartments um, across the mm-hmm. hall from each other. And that trend is very, very common in our community. Uh, where folks are having to rent very big homes to buy homes, even in some instances where rent is not available, um, and to really extend their budgets and and spend way more than 50% of their budgets on just housing. Another critical component of this lab is the challenge of not just creating housing, but creating homes that are affordable for Muslim families in need. So next, we're going to speak to our lab's architecture expert, Sherry Shorten, to understand the specific design needs and built form challenges that need to be addressed to affordably house larger, multi-generational Muslim families while making space for safety, beauty, and dignity. My name is Sherry Shorten, and I'm an Edmonton architect. And I work mainly in the area of housing and infill in our city. Uh, We do do commercial and private work, uh, but our focus really since 2016 has been on the housing market. First question, when we're we're talking about the challenge of this lab, I mean, there's a number of intersecting challenges. One of them is how do we understand how we can house intergenerational families? In your practice broadly and through this lab process, what are some of the unique design considerations that we need to think about when designing for intergenerational families that may differ from, you know, how how a market the market typically provides housing in our cities? So, intergenerational families are large extended families. Um, this could be um, parents and grandparents. Um, so, it's people taking care of each other, which helps affordability within the family unit. So larger extended families means there's more people in the building. 
and there are different conditions for comfort. Just simply mechanical electrical systems would be different. Uh, you would want to reduce the amount of humidity so you don't generate mold. So building for intergenerational families is building for um, a different kind of housing model that we have in Canada. Um, that, you know, is probably what comes to mind first. But of course, there's all kinds of design considerations for bedroom layouts and units and public and private and amenity space as well. Mm -hmm. And what what would be some of those differences? I, I think it's interesting to think about the public-private inside a private space, let's say. So, so people live together, but, you know a lot of human beings need some some privacy across generations and things what what are some of the the learnings that that you've had in terms of um you know layouts and different kinds of considerations than you know say uh a couple or a single person or a family with a kid i think like the the lab really is focused on newcomers and islamic families and muslim families and those families are coming in large units of of people um, so in terms of that, uh, group, I mean, we always design for culture and environment and whatever we're doing, but there are very specific environmental and cultural considerations that we have to take into account. Um, the private public spaces, there is a separation of male and female, um, at certain times. And so the design incorporates, um, ways for public and private space to be used in that way. There's mm -hmm. also a need within these families for religious spaces at in, during the day. So there's a need for quiet reflection space that we don't, these kinds of spaces we don't typically have in our Canadian models. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. I know you do a lot of work in the affordable housing space generally. Um, there's no shortage of challenges of building affordable housing but um you know in your experience broadly in your practice and within this lab uh, as well what are some of the structural barriers that you've seen and experienced uh in creating affordable housing uh in canada and edmonton specifically well i think uh to get to the core of it we have a model of housing that we understand in canada that was generated in the 1970s and it was done so to create a housing um a housing economic model for people that required real estate people and, and, and a whole industry. So we came up with a model of a house. It was a pre-engineered house that aligns with the building code and everybody can go and build a house because you've got a sort of a simple path and a plan to build an affordable house for everybody. So out of the seventies, this, this issue was no different than it is today. People needed affordable housing. Um, today, we're faced with, you know, in, incredibly expensive costs of construction. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of new regulations in place. And I think that if we're going to talk about affordability in housing, we have to talk about the long term and longevity of housing, the entire operational cycle of a building. So we tend to look at performa in which we look at the upfront costs, the profit loss in, in the immediate um, production and development of that work. Those are the numbers that we're focused on and talking about and, and creating meaningful conversations about affordability really require we talk about the entire life cycle um, of, of the home to understand if the decisions we're making um, in these early stages are actually going to stand up and make that an affordable 
product over the long term. So it's mm-hmm. a shifting of how we, I think they, the, the barrier is really a shift to think about the long-term cost, the, the, the cost of waste, um, the environmental costs that, that, that are all inclusive in many building projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are upfront costs. So um, the decisions that we're making really need to be longer term decisions for a, a longer, a product that lasts longer and is therefore more viable. To better understand the long-term costs and unique challenges and opportunities of affordable housing within the Muslim community in Canada, we're going to next speak to our lab's financial expert, Anna Bubel. One of the core principles of this lab is that the financing of the project is Sharia compliant. So in Canada, conventional financing is based on the concept of return on investment as represented by interest being paid. This arrangement is problematic for Muslims who understand the Quran to prohibit usury in every form. Essentially, making money from money is forbidden. So this prohibition has required the development of alternative Sharia-compliant lending products in financial institutions, which combines religion, risk, and reward into a unique form of commerce that's existed for over 1,400 years. The overarching principles of Sharia-compliant or halal financing are that interest is forbidden, fairness and transparency govern financial relations, and that profit is earned from labor and enterprise rather than speculation. So, Anna, could you introduce yourself and what it is that you do? Sure. Anna Bubel. I'm the principal of Another Way, which is a consulting firm that specializes in community economic development. Great. And so, uh, through the the lab process that we've been undertaking, there have been no shortage of avenues and various types of explorations we've been doing. In in your explorations uh, to date, um, could you maybe describe some of the um, challenges that that you've um, experienced in terms of trying to find that financing uh, model or resource um, that kind of meets the the halal financing approach, and and how that differs with sort of the conventional approach that we that we understand here in Canada today. Okay, well, it's easier to describe the conventional approach. So most of us have experience with the mortgage, and what we do is we promise to pay someone interest in exchange for borrowing, and we write up a contract that specifies how much we're borrowing, the interest rate, the term of the deal, and then the amortization period, which is how long you have to pay off uh, the building. So if your opening premise is that you cannot pay interest, you have to look at what can we do that would be different than that in terms of Sharia compliance. So there are a number of hurdles. So one whole set are legal hurdles. So for example, in Alberta, uh, credit unions by law in terms of their incorporation must charge interest. So that's a problem. They can offer a Sharia compliant product. Similarly, on the corporate law side, when you go into contract law, contract law requires that when you loan money, you must charge even nominal interest. And the reason for that language is to differentiate between a loan, let's say, or a grant or some other type of vehicle. Hmm. So if we wanted to make changes, we would be talking about changing federal corporate law, provincial corporate law, and uh, the law that governs, for example, a credit union. So these are not small little hurdles. Then from a more practical point of view, what we have found is that no one in this country offers a multifamily Sharia compliant loan product. There are uh, institutions that provide commercial lending that are Sharia compliant. 
Um, and there are what we are calling bespoke small lenders that might offer Sharia compliant multifamily loans, uh, but they're going to be relatively speaking expensive. And there just isn't the capitalization to allow us to have these kinds of products available across the board. So a CMHC uh, insured pool uh, of multifamily lending is not available at the moment. So that product does not exist. And then philosophically, we also have some concerns around how even the blessed Sharia compliant um, mortgage products are currently structured. So this is more on the personal lending side. Mm -hmm. And it's not unanimous. There's a range of opinion about uh, how strict one needs to be. Uh, but one concern might be, for example, if you borrowed the source of capital and paid interest on that borrowing, even if the subsequent mortgage product doesn't charge interest, is that still Sharia compliant? Right. Another problem might be uh, even if you're not charging interest, uh, if your entire payment schedule is based on a traditional principal and interest schedule, and all someone's done is changed interest for fees at the top of the table, are you really, is the spirit of Sharia compliance really being met? Mm -hmm. So those are just some three layers of examples of some of the challenges that we have found. Mm -hmm. And really one of the critical parts of the lab is, you know, it speaks to innovation and coming up with innovation is, you know, coming up with new ways of doing things. So uh, the creativity of the team is really uh going to need to be tapped into to kind of meet that spirit of, of whatever um, kind of solution we can find, if any, throughout this process. With that, we'll give the final word today to Omar to express the broader positive impact of addressing affordable housing needs for newcomer Muslim families across Canadian cities. Yeah, I think it's huge. You know, I think when we think about uh, one thing I should just uh, stop, uh, just adjust uh, we're not just talking about newcomer families, right? Oftentimes, when we talk about Muslims, we tend to lump it in with newcomer. And there, there are a lot of Muslim newcomers, but there are also fourth, fifth generation Muslims in a city like Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's um, the oldest mosque in Canada is in Edmonton. It's more than 80 years old. Uh, the challenges of housing aren't just newcomer challenges. Absolutely. Um, but what what I think this offers to us as a nation is you know, a way of addressing some of our most fundamental needs, right? We want people to be secure in their housing. We know that if people are secure and, um, and flourishing in their homes, that we have less work to do when it's uh, in domestic violence. We have less work to do when it comes to uh, challenges their kids might feel in school, right? All these other things are addressed by housing. Um, you know, I had a friend and he was relaying information he heard from an Indigenous elder that I thought was really beautiful. Uh, what that elder said was that housing is the best medicine. Hmm. Right? And, you know, it, I think it's worth unpacking that a little bit, right? Think about an issue or a social uh, challenge. And oftentimes it's, underpinned by housing right addictions well you you can't really address your addictions if you don't have stable housing um domestic violence oftentimes we think about domestic violence as you know a bad actor working in nefarious ways well that that can be true but a lot of times 
domestic violence is triggered by economic instability. And if you address economic instability, the domestic violence doesn't happen. People actually form healthier habits, you know, take out stressful situations and people act more civil. I think also when we think about what this has to offer Canada, it's, I think it's different ways of cohabitating, uh, different ways of building, right? We are you know, facing significant isolation, not just with seniors, but all across, right? And so we need to be thinking about modes of living that are more social. And I think we can look to communities like the Indigenous community, Muslim communities, um, other communities for references on how to live in ways that are really healthy and uh, that feed the mm-hmm. soul, right? Not mm-hmm. just uh, not just protection from the elements. This has been great. Before, before uh, I, I let you go, uh, I'll ask you one question we ask all the guests. Can you tell me a city that you love and why you love it? Oh, that's too easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Everyone complains about this. They say it's too hard. I love it. No, Edmonton is <laughs> my favorite city. You know, not because it's pretty. Uh, it isn't. Uh, not because of the weather, because it doesn't have that. Uh, <laughs> um, but but Edmonton's like, I think, a genuinely soulfully warm place. Mm. Uh, you know, I think it's also a space where having a wild idea like uh, halal housing can actually happen uh that's what makes me really excited about the city and you know just beautiful people beautiful community um i wouldn't be anywhere else as you can see from our lab collaborators that we've talked to today uh, you can understand the converging complexities that this lab is trying to address So as we work through the lab, we're hoping to identify how different housing models and solutions can really contribute to a new way of creating a sense of home for all Canadians. Stay tuned for the next installments of the Halal Housing Lab series, where we're going to deep dive into the various focus areas that are going to influence this complex challenge that we're trying to solve. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.